What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We die to sin. So can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried in him through baptism unto death. And in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old life was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. And we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that Christ, since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has any mastery over him. The death he died he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you may obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For we shall not be your master, for sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace." Uh, well, this passage from Romans 6 is, um, is not an unusual passage to have read at, uh, at a baptism because, as you would have noticed, the word baptism or baptize comes up quite a lot in this passage. But it, um, it doesn't tell you very much about how to hold a baptism service, does it? It doesn't say anything about um, what hymn shall we sing? What prayer should we pray? What should we read from the Bible? How much water should we use? You know, who does the baptism? All those kind of practical things. doesn't say anything about that at all. Um, so what is it about? What is, it, what is that passage really about? Um, it starts off by Paul seeking to answer a question. Uh, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What's the, what's the point of that question? Well, we, we have to go back a bit in Romans to kind of understand where he's, uh, where he's coming from here. So, you know, in the first part of this letter, he has explained to them the basic gospel of how Jesus died for our sins so that through faith in him we may be reconciled to God. And that... All of this has come from God's love for us, his mercy towards us, uh, his grace towards us. 
Uh, grace has done something for us that we could not do for ourselves. And uh, that experience of grace, as, as he kind of sums up at the beginning of chapter 5, is uh, that grace brings us to a position of faith, uh, of peace with God. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. So I wonder how you have, uh, how you experience that in your life. What was that moment in your life where you first came to faith in Christ? What was it that kind of led you to that point of, of belief, of giving your life to Jesus, however it was explained to you? I wonder how you would express that. Because we, we, we enter that experience in different ways, and we'd probably use different language to explain it. Uh, some people do find in that initial encounter a real sense of forgiveness. Uh, other people have an, have an experience where they just know the love of God for them or the peace of God around them. Uh, some people come to it because they have just such a conviction of the truth of it. I wonder how you how you remember that, how many years ago that was for, for some of you here. It's, it's not an experience you ever forget, is it? The first time uh, as I sometimes have said to people, I, you know, I was brought up in a, in a church, I was brought up in a Baptist church actually, and so I, I went to a lot of church stuff, but I, I remember one evening, I was 17 years old at the time, and um, I went home after a Sunday evening service, and I'd, I, this conviction had grown on me for months, and I remember kneeling down my, by my bed and thinking, I'm actually going to speak to God for myself for the first time. You understand that? You know, I mean, I'd heard loads of prayers up to that point. But it was quite an awesome thing to think, God, I actually want to talk to you for myself, for real. For real. I suppose for me, it was that I had to confess a truth that had, that had grown on me. Um, but somehow through that experience, through things that we, we read or we're taught or or things that we learn from hymns, actually. What's, what great hymns, isn't it? That's what's so good about singing great hymns. There's, there's fantastic theology in some of those hymns, isn't there, that we've sung tonight. Um, so, we, uh, so we've had this experience of grace where, where God, as we know, has, has, has forgotten, forgiven our past. So Paul gets this question. So when Paul preached this gospel of grace, particularly to the Jews, he got this question back. Well, if, if it's all of God's grace, and, and God's grace is magnified and his glory is magnified by forgiving us our sin, well, how about us committing more sin, and then God will be even more glorified? Now, how would you answer that question? Is that, a, is that a good question? Or are you rightly suspicious that that is a tricky question, isn't it? 
That's a tricky, that's a trick question almost. That's a trick question. And um, so Paul says, look, hang on a minute. You haven't, if you think that's the way it goes, you've misunderstood what is the real significance of the cross of Jesus Christ. He doesn't actually mention the word the cross in this passage, but Jesus' cross, his death and resurrection, is at the heart of what Paul is trying to explain here. And here is the thing which I suppose I wanted to particularly bring out tonight, because if I said to you, well, you're, you're Christians, you know, how do you, how do you um, understand what happened on the cross? Now, without being too presumptuous, I, I suspect that a large proportion of you would say, on the cross, Jesus died for our sins. And you would be right. You would be right. Hallelujah. You would be right. But what Paul says in this passage is something more than that. It's not only that Jesus died for our sins, but that we died in him. We died in him. Now, how does that work? Because you all look pretty alive to me tonight, thankfully. You all look pretty alive to me tonight. So what does it mean when he says, we died in him? You didn't, clearly you didn't die historically at that point. Um, what does that mean? What does that mean? So to try and explain this, he, he reminds them of their baptism. He gets them to think about what happened in their baptism. Um, because baptism illustrates this truth. Baptism demonstrates this truth. Because baptism is a burial, isn't it? It's a burial. In fact, in, in, in Colossians, he actually I think he uses the word explicitly, that it's a burial. Have you ever thought of baptism as a burial? Perhaps you've always thought of it in terms of, well, you know, in baptism we are washed, our sins are washed away. Well, that is true, but it's also a burial. That's why, that's why, and this is why I'm glad that I was brought up in a Baptist church, you know, because we, I've always been a full immersion person, you know, a full immersion. And um, so when we baptize people, we put them all under the water. Hallelujah. We all, and in fact, I'm very particular about this. When I, when I talk to people who want to be baptized, or I'm talking to people who are going to do the baptism, I'm very insistent on this. Make sure they all go under the water. Because if you buried somebody naturally, and a bit of them was left sticking up out of the grave, you'd think that was pretty disgusting, wouldn't you? Well, he hadn't buried him properly because his hand's sticking up, you know, or his foot's sticking up. You think, well, that's terrible. That's terrible. We can't possibly bury people like that. You bury them by putting them all under the ground, don't you? So in, in baptism, we put them all under the water. So I've, I've reassured John about this, you know, so I've told him to close his mouth when it happens. You know. So we bury them. We bury them. And then we lift them up. We raise them up. And that's the beauty of baptism, isn't it? It's, it symbolizes, it demonstrates, it illustrates death and resurrection in Jesus Christ. The, the water, as it were, represents the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the, the kingdom of God. However you think of that, we baptize someone into that death of Jesus and we raise them up in his life. Now, this, this is something that a lot of Christians understand, particularly 
praise God if they've been taught in Baptist churches. But, um, but, but we struggle more to live in it. Sarah had a conversation this week with a Christian lady. She hadn't met before. So this, this lady talked to Sarah for 10, 15 minutes. And um, Sarah said to me afterwards, so I said, oh, you had that conversation? She said, yes. She spent 10, 15 minutes telling me of all her problems. She had problems in her family. She had problems in her home. She had problems going on. Everything in her life was a problem. And you think, well, where is the freedom of your Christian life when everything is a problem? Somehow, you know, we think that we're saved by grace, but we grow through effort. You know, know, I was kind of, God saved me by his grace, but now I'm kind of battling away to live my Christian life, and I'm toiling away, and I'm struggling away, and it's all a burden. But the key, the key is in realizing that God hasn't just forgiven us, but he has in a spiritual way, I almost want to say a mystical way, he has joined us to Christ so that we can benefit from that dying and rising. Now, I wonder, I wonder how you've experienced that. I wonder, I wonder how the Holy Spirit has ever taught you in that kind of realm. Again, I think it's something that probably is unique to every one of us, how we discover this. I, when I was at college, I was a very young, very enthusiastic activist Christian. In fact, I, 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 was, I, was, um, I was president of our CU Christian Union. That's how, that's how enthusiastic I was, you know. So... Um, so I was quite pleased with how much I was doing for God. My wife's smiling at this point because she, she knew me at this time. What, I, was, I was a fairly obnoxious Christian, I suppose, at this point in my life. But um, I remember someone, an older, wiser man, came and took some meetings for us one weekend. And um, he said to me, Andrew, what you've got to understand is this. It's not about what you are doing for God. It's about what God can do through you. And um, when he said this to me, it was like an, an arrow went into my heart. You know that expression? I mean, that expression like when an arrow goes into your heart. And the kind of the life energy sort of drains out of you at that point. And that, for me, that was my first experience of dying. Dying because I thought, it's, it's not about the life I want to live for God. It's about the life that God wants to put in me. And I think that, that, that moment for me was probably as significant as that night when I first knelt down and prayed. Because it helped me to understand that I wasn't just forgiven and accepted and loved 
and at peace with God, but that, that God was trying to do something inside of me. God was trying to do something inside of me. That something inside of me had to die for something of God to take its place. Jesus explained this to his disciples at one point when he said this, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, we all know that is true, isn't it? I mean, Jesus was brilliant at using these examples from nature. If a, if a, if a, if a, if a grain of wheat, you know, if you just leave it there, you could leave it there for days or weeks or months, but nothing would happen, would it? Nothing would happen. It would just remain on its own. But if you bury it, if you bury it, then, as it were, it dies, doesn't it? The husk of it dies, and out of it comes a new life. And, and that principle is in nature, isn't it? Every winter, every spring, we see it. Death and resurrection. Dying and rising. Falling and rising. So Jesus went on to say, so he who loses his life, i.e. that natural life, his sinful life, his selfish life, he who loses that life in this world will keep his life unto life eternal, will keep it unto life eternal. He'll get that eternal dimension of life, that life that was in Jesus Christ. And then he went on to say this, and this, I think, this, this little phrase that he says kind of brings it out. He says, and in fact, I'll read this. It's in, um, it's in John chapter 11. Let me just read this. Oh, I've got to find it. That's no, in John chapter 12. So he says, and then he goes on to say this, Anyone who wants to be my disciple must follow me. For where I am, there my servant will be also. For where I am, there my servant will be also. Now, if you think of that for a phrase for a moment, it's the reverse of how we normally pray. Because what we normally pray is, Lord, I'm here, and I really want you to be with me. You've all prayed that prayer, haven't you? I bet you've all prayed that prayer in certain circumstances. Lord, I'm kind of in this situation, or we're in this service, or we're in this church, or we, you know, we've got this situation, and we want you to be with us. And we feel very holy when we pray like that, don't we? Lord, we want you to be with us. But Jesus said this, where I am, there my servant will be also. That, that completely changes your idea of what it means to serve God, doesn't it? Because you thought, well, I'm going to serve God and I hope that God will be with me. No, no, no. No. Jesus is the servant of God and you need to be where he is. And if you are his servant, you will be where he is. You will be where he is. But, but the truth of that comes out of this dying and rising, doesn't it? Because it's not about me and God joining me. It's about Christ. And me joining him. Me joining him. So, 
Someone kind of summed this up in these words. He said, the cross not only disburdens us of our guilt, it commits us into a new life. In our salvation, Jesus Christ is not only our comfort, but our power. Not merely our rescuer from sin, but our new life. His work on the cross and our sharing in it not only rescues us from sin, at the same time it reclaims our lives for God. So in a, in a few moments we're going to baptize John. And John, John experiences that moment of his own death and resurrection in baptism. But we all get to see it, don't we? We all get to, as it were, we can participate in it. We kind of, for those of us who've been baptized, we kind of can relive it. We can relive that moment and think and kind of receive it again. That God has put an, an end to my past and he is giving me a new life and a new future. I just need to surrender my life to that. I just need to surrender my life to that. Surrendering our lives to God sets us free. That's the great paradox of it. That's the great paradox of it, isn't it? Many young Christians, you know, or people struggling on the margins of faith kind of think, I'm not really sure about surrendering my life to God. He might make me do terrible things. <laughs> he might send me to Africa as a missionary or something. You know. we, our natural person, you see, this is the natural life, isn't it? The natural life doesn't want to die. The natural life wants to stay in control. The natural life wants to be number one. The natural life wants to be king. But when we surrender, in this amazingly paradoxical way, God sets us free into that new life. And um, afterwards you look back on it and you think, I'm so glad I did that. I'm so glad I did that. I'm so glad that in Jesus I found the truth of dying and being raised. And then you can live the Christian life from a good foundation, can't you? You can live the Christian life from a good foundation and a right foundation. A foundation of being free. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.